Good afternoon. Welcome to the next session of the National Symposium for Classical Education. We're so glad you're able to join us for this year's all online COVID edition of our symposium. We do hope to gather in person once again next year in Phoenix. For this session, you'll be hearing from Dr. Benjamin Hurlbut on contextualizing science, bioethics, and the formation of scientific thought. We want to especially thank our sponsors who have generously donated, uh, joined us for this digital version of events. You can learn more about their various resources designed to support K-12 classical by visiting the exhibitors tab in the virtual attendee hub. During the presentation, please add your questions to the live question and answer section to the right of your screen. At the conclusion of the presentation, we will be going through those questions in a live session uh, for a Q&A time. We especially want to thank the sponsorship from Arizona State University's School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership. I'm Paul Carice, Director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. CivEd is our new online platform with a rich set of tools for school students, teachers, and learners of all ages who seek to be informed and engaged citizens in American politics and civil society. Our goal with CivEd is to provide these vital resources to educators, students, and interested community members so that America has more citizens capable of thoughtfully and effectively participating in our democratic process. The school will continue to add more resources as they become available, and we encourage you to learn more and engage with us on our website, scetl.asu.edu forward slash cived. I want to thank the organizers for including me in this uh, really wonderful and, and important conference. Um, I'm going to say a few words today about uh, bioethics and about the place of considerations of ethical dimensions of science and technology in the classroom. And I think actually importantly in the high school classroom, uh, maybe even in younger years, I have some young kids and they are oftentimes I find the most interesting or amongst the most interesting and insightful interlocutors around questions of, of a major import in bioethics, in part because they, in a sense, haven't been socialized into particular ways of thinking. There's an honesty associated with them. And so I'm talking about bioethics in relation to the formation of scientific thought, and I'm going to tell you a few stories um, about important examples of such formation. But I also want this to be a discussion about formation of young scientists, but not just scientists, also citizens. Science and technology so profoundly permeate our world uh, that um, they must be approached and engaged not simply as matters of knowledge that one acquires from a textbook, uh, but also as citizens. Um, as informed, critically reflective citizens who are in a position to make judgments about what sort of world we should live in. And that world is rapidly changing. There are perturbations, I'll just highlight a few here, to fundamental, uh, fundamentally important, morally important, um, uh, but also materially important um, dimensions of our world, including of ourselves. Um, just to flag a few headlines that point to the ways in which the biosciences and biotechnology are pushing up against 
dimensions of human life that are of significance to all of us. This is a, a uh, um, plate of um, stem cells, human stem cells, embryonic stem cells, um, that are placed in a kind of a constrained um, physical environment. And lo and behold, they self-organize into something that looks remarkably like it has features of human embryogenesis, human embryonic development going on. Um, and so we have to ask questions of these kinds of material formations in our world, how human is too human, uh, when it is technically quite simple, but morally quite complex to create such entities in laboratories. And those, those questions belong not just to the people who inhabit those laboratories and make judgments about those things, but we have to ask this corollary question of who's, of what notions of the human should inform judgments about what kind of work is appropriate or inappropriate and how those accounts, how accounts of those visions should be given in what fora, um, drawing upon what forms of expertise with what forms of public participation with drawing upon what um, moral philosophical uh, uh, and legal traditions and so forth. Because at stake here is not merely a collection of cells, but the kind of conceptual um, and social and moral commitment to um, the integrity of the human. And yet, this is the way that most young people encounter the biosciences. This is my daughter. She's the textbook of my daughter. She's a freshman in um, high school at Tempe Preparatory Academy. Um, here is the very short, essentially half-page entry on uh, ethical questions. It's situated within a kind of 10-page section on um, the powers and benefits of genetics. There's another very short page which is dedicated um, to the, the history of eugenics and its relationship to genetics, a very thin account. Um, this is textbook science and textbook bioethics presented together. Textbook science is, gives a, a picture of science, not in its formation, but in its settled form. And in a sense, it does the same thing with ethics, although, you know, of course, dedicating um, less than, what is it, uh, one fifth of 1% of the book to, to uh, those sorts of dimensions. And yet, the making of, well, eugenics was also the making of modern genetics. Um, and the ideas about why that science was important and what form it should take, how it should inform not just knowledge, but projects of, of applying knowledge in social life were profound. That story is generally told as a story of the bad old days when the science was bad. And now the science in this textbook shows us that the project of eugenics was wrong. Sure, that's fair enough. But there is a sense in which that kind of simplification of history tends to elide things that are constitutive, that are essential. So eugenics gets sort of relegated to about a century back. And yet here is Robert Sinsheimer. This is just one example I could pick of many. A major figure in the development of, of uh, molecular biology and biotechnology. He was the chancellor of UC Santa Cruz for years. 
a new eugenics, this is in 1969, a new eugenics would permit in principle the conversion of all of the unfit to the highest genetic level for we should have the means to create new genes and new qualities yet undreamed. Define genetic, genetic improvement of man as a means to carry on and consciously perfect the human species. These are the ideas that were animating the development of the do, that domain of the sciences that then filled that 10 page section describing the many contributions it's made to our society. And it's no question that it has made those contributions. But this, in a sense, these ideas sit inside of its DNA as well, which is precisely why in the formation of young scientists and citizens, it's critical that these dimensions also be attended to, not in a, merely in the sense of knowing the fact of, of their existence and history and so forth, although that is important, but also in the sense of engaging with the way in which projects of knowledge and technique are undertaken with a critical perspective. Why? Why know this? What project of knowledge is informing emphasis on this particular dimension of life, life known in these particular ways? And what I want to do is tell a couple of stories that I think illustrate sort of sensibilities that are present that should be drawn to the fore, made visible, um, particularly to those who are not yet enculturated into those sensibilities. My experience teaching undergraduates, since that's where I do my teaching, uh, is that there's a sense in which because, because they haven't yet been taught how to think about such things, they are better able to think about them critically than some of the most senior, powerful figures in these domains themselves, people in the fields of bioethics and high science and technology. Um, so I want to tell you sort of two stories that draw these things out because the stories in themselves are interesting, but they're useful stories to think with. And the first story begins with the sort of advent of what became biotechnology in the 1970s, <clears throat> namely developments in recombinant DNA, the capacity to make genetic modifications, very simple, and now, in retrospect, it looks very simple, genetic modifications to, to uh, very basic organisms like E. coli. Probably for those of you who teach high school biology, the, this is something that you do routinely in your classrooms. Um, so the advent of this capacity raised quite serious questions about, well, what that capacity might mean, because it, it entailed a kind of shift from a descriptive approach to life to transformation, producing evolutionarily unprecedented entities, um, moving, moving uh, genetic, um, genetic information across species boundaries, across large evolutionary chasms and so forth. Um, and so in the early 1970s, worries began to emerge about the potential biohazards associated with this and additional sorts of concerns about what it might mean for um, the biosciences more broadly and their social, their um, responsibility to society. So this is a picture of the organizing committee at the famous 1975 Asilomar meeting, a meeting in which the kind of luminaries from this community gathered together to make judgments about how to govern this domain of technology. This is a crucial moment in the formation of contemporary biology, not mentioned in my daughter's textbook, of course. And the solution that came from that was this solution, containment. The best way to think about problems that might be created by the biological sciences was to think about the ways the biological sciences might keep those problems locked up namely contained in the laboratory. 
Importantly, it was informed by concerns about a different domain of science and technology, one that had given rise to this not so, so many years before. Um, and of course had produced a, a sort of transformation of social life through a, a technological achievement um, that was, you know, a source of, of great ambivalence at best. Here is um, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the bombs, kind of characterization of, of what physics had achieved in achieving the bomb in some sort of crude sense in which no vulgarity, no humor, no overstatement can quite extinguish. The physicists have known sin, and this is a knowledge which they cannot lose. There is a sense in which the biologists in at the Asilomar meeting were seeking to do, seeking to, um, uh, to avoid that step, that misstep maybe that the physicists had taken by in a sense governing themselves. But what was of concern was not simply that they govern themselves and that they proceed responsibly, although that was part of it. It was also that they not be governed by others, that they maintain a kind of autonomy uh, over their domain of research. And, and so the solution that was offered was a solution, an engineering solution, an engineering solution to a problem of, of social, political, moral responsibility, in effect, um, by building into the experimental systems, in this case, the E. coli, um, measures of, of uh, a kind of tool, a, a sort of technology of containment um, that would in effect guarantee, or at least would be the basis for reassuring others that they could guarantee that their risks would not escape the laboratory. That has become a kind of mode of thinking about the relationship between biology and society or the relationship between biology and biotechnology's products in society, engineering into those systems mechanisms for keeping them biologically locked up where the idea is that you could disseminate them out into the world, raise fields of genetically modified organisms that because of the way, in this case, the modifications are made to the genetic code, um, uh, they, they uh, are um, isolated, biologically isolated, and therefore sort of not subject to the same sorts of questions we might ask about interventions in nature, because this is pure artifice. I really like this statement, which came from Ted Kennedy in 1976, because it points to something crucial. And that is that what was at stake at Asilomar and in, this, in the decades since in discussions of governance of biotechnology was not simply technical assessments of risks, but also the question of what is at stake and who judges what is at stake. So the factors under consideration at Asilomar extend far beyond the scientists' technical competency. In fact, they were making public policy and they were making it in private. So scientific knowledge making and, and expert judgment is not just an exercise of expertise. It's not just an exercise of knowledge. It's also an exercise of authority. And that authority sits in a particular position um, within contemporary society. It has an absolutely crucial role to play. And so asking, how does it sit there? Where does it sit there? What authorizes it? And what are the, what are the moments in which expert judgment is the right way to make what is in effect public policy? And what's at stake in those judgments? Those are, those are political questions, those are civic questions that you can't see by looking at the science of a biology textbook. But if you look at science out in public life, it's immediately evident. 
And so we need to develop our young people's capacity to think about these things, to understand these things, because the kinds of judgments that were made in a small, fairly narrow community of people in 1975 have come to populate our world in profound ways. For example, much of the Midwest is covered in forms of, of uh, engineered corn and soy that have profoundly shaped our food system, public health, the political economy of, of both of those, et cetera, um, where they were seen as sort of narrow judgments about whether the, the corn organism itself um, you know, poses any particular risks to health and where those concerns were dismissed. And yet, if you think systemically about them, um, then there are very legitimate and very significant concerns that at least warrant discussion. They warrant being made visible. Um, so rather than try to narrow these down into sort of narrow technical problems, um, they should be opened up and contended with um, as collective matters. Otherwise you get this which is to say a kind of fracturing of a society. This is in France, of course, but we have a similar, similar um, expressions of concern here. A kind of fracturing between experts and publics um, where that fracture is characterized as, well, pro-science and anti-science, those who know and those who are ignorant. It's a radical oversimplification, one that does damage not just to, the, to science, to our sense of science, but to democracy and to the relationship between science and democracy. So what I've tried to show with this little story is that there's a tendency to treat risk as a technology specific problem of containment with that produces sort of narrowed down parameters of deliberation. This ends up reducing controversy to matters of or really for expert scientific judgment, which has a kind of effect of excluding questions um, of wider public concern and therefore excluding wider publics. And it, it produces also a kind of asymmetrical treatment of risk and benefit. It narrates progress, but that narration of progress comes from a sort of small and elite group rather than from a democratic collective. And therefore it has a kind of a fragility, even if it has a power um, that sooner or later will produce, um, produce controversy, trouble, even disaster for, for the societies in which it's rolled out. This is from a National Academies report looking forward to the biology of the 21st century. And this is a sort of framing of its project. The new biology will enunciate and address broad and challenging societal problems, enunciate and address. In other words, it will set the agenda as well as fulfill that agenda. It will say what needs to be done and do it. And yet the saying of what needs to be done is a problem for all of us. And the way, the ways we need to see the relationship between the capacity to do and the kinds of formations, social, political, of, of people themselves necessary in order to robustly enunciate what needs to be done. That is the challenge. I think it's a, it's a serious pedagogical challenge. Okay, let me go on to this sort of second story. Um, and this is this is the um, way stories. I gotta let my dog out. Get out of here, dog. Sorry. Um, this is this um, speaks not just to the fact that progress gets narrated in particular domains, but also what that means for the way in which science and technology play out. Okay, so back to this development, which is maybe the most controversial, disconcerting 
um, development in the domain of, of uh, genetics in recent years. In response to the potential of new genome editing technologies, in particular the technology CRISPR-Cas9, for making heritable modifications to genomes, including in principle the human genome, the, the uh, U.S. National Academies, the Royal Society, and the Chinese Academy of Sciences in 2015 convened um, the International Summit on Human Gene Editing. It was opened by David Baltimore, Nobel laureate, former president of Caltech. Here are his comments. The unthinkable has become conceivable. Now we must face the questions that arise. How, if at all, do we as a society want to use this capability? In undertaking this project, the National Academies reached back to a precedent, a 40-year-old precedent, for who should take responsibility for asking and answering questions about what is right and appropriate in the development of biotechnology, namely the 1975 Asilomar meeting. And the way in which that discussion unfolded reflected in important respects, though it did depart in others, important respects, this sort of notion that those who know how to do it are best positioned to ask whether it should be done. Baltimore again. In 1975, as today, we believed it was prudent to consider the implications of a remarkable achievement in science. And then as now, we recognized we had a responsibility to include a broad community in our discussions. And yet that was a meeting, a closed door meeting in which uh, that included primarily the luminaries working in that domain of science and technology at the moment and a small number of journalists who were invited pretty much at the last minute. There's a sense in which there should be a broad community involved in the discussions, but primarily in the mode of spectators, because the experts will, will think through what needs to be thought through, um, put the issues on the table, declare what's at stake and what knowledge needs to be drawn upon in order to address those questions. And yet what questions need to be asked is a question that precedes that discussion um, and may indeed um, lead it in very, a very different direction. Here's Baltimore in, at the meeting in 1975. And indeed, one of the things that's remarkable about that meeting is Baltimore opened it by saying, we will not discuss two things. These are first comments made in 1975. We will not discuss two things, issues of bioweapons or biosecurity uh, and ethical, social and ethical dimensions um, of recombinant DNA technology. Because on the one hand, the the military issues are not our problem. And on the other hand, the social and ethical issues take us into domains of sort of subjective judgment um, that, that are um, inappropriate and pointless. No one will agree on those things. And yet by bracketing out those dimensions, we basically 40 years later are having to confront them in ways that, that uh, are profound um, precisely because they were in a sense excluded from the conversation. This is the conclusion that came out of that meeting, um, that heritable genome editing should not proceed unless there's broad societal consensus about the proposed application. And yet, I mean, that judgment came on the heels of what actually was already a very old discussion. This is a letter issued by three religious organizations um, to, to the Carter administration um, after the advent of recombinant DNA, in, in vitro fertilization, the test tube babies, so to speak, 
um, and a Supreme Court decision in which um, the Supreme Court determined that engineered biological entities are patentable products. Um, they pointed to a new era of fundamental danger triggered by the rapid growth of genetic engineering, which raises the question of the fundamental nature of human life and the dignity and worth of the individual human being. So what I want to point to here is a response that was made to that technical possibility, which many saw at that moment as impossible, which took a broad conversation about the significance of these advances and the context into which they would emerge, namely the dignity and worth of the individual human being, questions of human dignity, integrity, and so forth, and narrowed it down to a question of the state of technology. So this, was, this came from a body, a bioethics body, the Presidential Commission in 1982 issued a report saying that, well, the problem, this discourse of playing God poses a kind of a problem for us. And the right sort of secular reformulation of that, the, as they said, rational kernel against the, uh, of the admonition against playing God um, is that it should avoid bad consequences. So if the consequences aren't bad, then, then it sort of doesn't apply. Playing God only means doing things that you shouldn't be doing that have negative consequences. And, and they further suggested that, well, the fact that it can't be done or wouldn't be done by anybody except for the most extreme circumstances in which, in which it's most necessary means that this sort of concern about playing God is irrelevant. And furthermore, the fact that it can't be done at this point means that there's really nothing to talk about at this point. In effect, it shut down conversation and said, and said, until that we're in a position to do it, um, we need not talk about it. And indeed, that's what the governing body, the recombinant DNA advisory committee, that's the position that it took, which persisted basically up until the present, that it will not entertain proposals for germline alterations, for heritable alterations. That was the position that held until uh, a couple of years after that summit, uh, uh, the National Academies issued a report saying, basically reversing that position, saying that in principle, actually, yes, it, it would be reasonable to make heritable genetic modifications. In explaining why, the co-chair of that committee, Richard Hines said, there's been a line drawn by many that says you should refrain. There's been a prohibition, but that prohibition doesn't really mean anything because there was no way of considering how to do that at all. So nobody was arguing that it should be done. Once it becomes possible to do it, any arguments about whether it should or shouldn't be done sort of go out the window. In other words, it places, it, it takes the problem and locates it entirely in the sort of question of the state of technology and in the judgment of experts about whether it's ready for such applications and in a sense delimits or precludes or, or silences discussions about the larger significance of, of a, a potential technological future um, where that technological future has not yet become realized or, or is on the threshold of becoming realized. And yet at the same time, there is a sense that, well, technology advances and once technology is advanced to a particular point, it basically becomes inevitable that it will be applied. So this is sort of discourse of inevitability that comes alongside, um, you know, a, a prohibition of any conversation until it in effect has become inevitable. So this is a somewhat provocative headline capturing what that report, the conclusion that that report came to. 
And lo and behold, uh, you know, a little bit over a year later, um, someone did indeed do it, as I'm sure everybody in this room has has uh, has um, knows. So I, as it happens, knew this guy, Hu Zhangkui. We'd been in a meeting together in, in uh, um, early 2017. Um, and and uh, I conducted some extensive interviews with him during the time after his sort of story came out and before he was imprisoned by Chinese authorities, basically. Um, and in the course of those interviews, he explained to me the sort of rationale for his project. And, and he pointed actually to something that was said by somebody at that meeting where we first met. A very senior scientist had said at that meeting, many major breakthroughs are driven by one or a couple of scientists. That strongly influenced me. You need a person to break the glass. You need a excuse me, you need a risk taker. You need someone to push through the barrier. And he pointed actually, um, as his sort of exemplar to somebody who had also 40 years earlier, produced a baby in secret through technological means, um, which was first learned about through the popular press, namely um, Robert Edwards and Patrick Steptoe producing the first, Louise Brown, the first baby born through IVF. And although that was highly controversial at the moment, um, Edwards later was awarded the Nobel Prize for that work. And Hu sort of imagined himself as following the same sort of trajectory. First, it's controversial, and then people settle down and get used to it, and ultimately you're valorized as a hero. Indeed, he learned from the kind of hero stories that science tells about itself and tells itself and, and sought to remake, sought to make himself in its image. Back of this is a sort of notion of how progress happens. This is the president of the National Academy of Sciences making a comment, a kind of throwaway comment that these are a dime of dozen. This was at the release of that 2017 um, report. As is always the case, the speed at which the science is advancing outpaces society's ability to grasp its implications. We tell ourselves this story all the time. Technology is racing ahead, society's lagging behind. Technology is moving so fast we can't keep up with it, et cetera, et cetera. But this, if we, if we think of progress in that way, if these are the stories that we tell ourselves about science and technology, that is the kind of science and technology that we get. Here's Hu again. If we're waiting for society to reach a consensus, it's never going to happen. But once one or a couple of scientists make the first kid, it's safe, healthy, then the entire society, including science, ethics, and law, will be accelerated, will speed up and make new rules. So I broke the glass. This is a scientist who was produced by our systems of scientific education. He did his doctoral work and his postdoctoral work in the United States, uh, who, has, who has imbibed a certain sort of vision, or you call it an ideology, of how progress happens, how science and technology lead progress, that, that he then understood as a kind of authorization. And indeed, there was plenty of support for this reading. In fact, there are many dozens of prominent people who, prominent people in the American scientific community who were privately supportive of his project, even if they were publicly critical um, after the fact. So this is one, one famous scientist told me, don't worry about the ethics in five years, 10 years, everything will change. This is a story that's told about a social environment in which, in which the ethics and those who might be um, custodians of the ethics, namely the people um, are, are uh, powerless 
because it just races ahead irregardless of what they think and say. But we render ourselves and passive by believing in that narrative. And yet this is the kind of narrative that's told all over the place. CRISPR babies, when will the world be ready? As though it's the world that's lagging behind, that's the recalcitrant entity and needs to be brought up to speed. So what I've been talking to you about are questions of science and technology in the in broader social context, but they're really most fundamentally questions about governance. They're questions about, and governance um, in its ancient form um, was a nautical term. It meant to steer the ship. And so the way we govern ourselves as a society, the way we govern science and technology, or the way we allow science and technology to govern us is a question about how we chart our course, how we navigate, with what instruments, uh, and, and where we imagine ourselves to be headed. Those are questions. Those are fundamentally humanistic questions. They're also fundamentally political questions. And yet in an era in which science and technology profoundly shape our lives, they are also scientific and technical questions. And therefore, those questions need to be asked together in an integrated way. And as we teach one element, we need to we need to also teach the way in which it is linked to the other elements, the ways in which quest humanistic questions of the good are always at stake in projects of knowledge making in the sciences, the ways in which technical evaluations of risks and benefits are always themselves tied up with value laden judgments about what questions are worth asking and about what sort of world we wish to live in. Let me bring you back to Oppenheimer to close. This is a statement, I think a powerful statement about scientific thoughtlessness. This is Oppenheimer on the hydrogen bomb. When you see something that's technically sweet, you go ahead and do it and you argue about what to do about it only after you have had your technical success. This is a scientific ethos that is widespread. And yet it's not something that's named in textbooks. And it's something that is neglected, I think maybe not even experienced until one is inside of that milieu. And yet it is something that should be made visible to all of us. It, it should be a matter of concern, of collective concern, precisely because these are the ways in which scientific and technological transformation happens in fits and starts, and the ways in which our worlds, social and material, are transformed thereby. And so, to put this all wrapped up in a, with a bow, there are three key dimensions, I think, that, that need to be present in science education, really at every level. And those are history, the situatedness of the projects of doing science and technology and the ways in which they have played out in social life. Um, and then the kinds of co corollary questions one can then ask about the forms of hubris and of humility that have or have not informed the ways those histories have played out. Uh, and therefore, the forms of hubris and humility we might seek to cultivate in ourselves and in our societies and in our scientific and technological institutions uh, in the name of making a truly progressive um, and democratic, uh, scientifically and technologically um, configured um, social life. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Hoba, for that presentation. I want to remind everybody uh, to submit your questions on the right-hand side panel where it says Q&A. 
so that we can use the remainder of our 25 minutes to go into a live session with Dr. Hobart himself. So I will give you a couple more minutes to submit what questions you may have uh, to conclude our time today. Alrighty, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Dr. Hobart, are you with us? I'm here, thank you. thank you. Great, all right, so we have our first question that came in. How would you address these issues in a ninth grade class? <laughs> so, I mean, that's a tall order, of course, but I think that there is a sense in which um, if we, if we um, you know, if you teach science as a, you know, matter of a sort of collection of settled facts, the way it's generally taught as sort of textbook science, um, it takes it out of context. And it's, it's actually very easy to put things in context because you can put it in the context of stories and everybody loves stories. And, you know, I mean, telling stories about, about um, history uh, and the, the sort of historical context in which, you know, knowledge came to be made, um, you know, that's, that's relatively straightforward. And those contexts always have the sorts of dimensions that I was trying to draw attention to in my talk. Um, it's not simply, you know, the, the curious and creative scientists, you know, seeking after um, knowledge of the natural world. There's also a sort of social context and a political context and a moral context and a religious context and et cetera. And, you know, sometimes when these things get taught, they sort of rehearse pretty tired tropes, for example, about, you know, the sort of time and memorial conflict between science and religion, which itself, that story itself has a history. I mean, there was a moment at which that story started getting told and that telling of that story had a purpose. And so I, I really think actually sort of at all levels, all the way down to pretty young kids, it's possible to formulate these things, you know, make these things accessible in the form of stories and then stories have meanings. And, you know, it's not hard for a five-year-old to, to grasp even fairly complex meanings when put in the form of a pretty simple story. Um, and so certainly for ninth graders, at least my ninth grader, you know, hand, handles it very well and is, finds it very engaging. So, but for some reason we don't teach science that way. All right, as, a, as kind of a follow-up to that question, are there any recommended readings to introduce ethical dilemmas in science geared towards upper elementary and middle school classes? Yeah, so this is a much harder question actually, because, um, because most of the writing that's done is, that digests these things is, um, you know, puts them in a, often pretty inaccessible frame because it's engaged with a particular esoteric 
disciplinary approach. I mean, you know, just open a journal in bioethics and it's pretty hard to wrap your head around the, the language and the concepts and the sort of apparatuses that are deployed in it, even if the problems are human problems, which are very likely very familiar to people. Um, and so I'm afraid I don't have a, a simple answer to that question. Here's this wonderful compendium. It should exist. I wish someone would make it. If I had the time and energy, I would make it. Um, when I teach this to undergraduates, and undergraduates are just you know a couple of years ahead of high school students, the way I do it mostly is through using sort of primary historical sources. So when I teach about Asilomar, for example, I uh, give them the article that was written in Rolling Stone in March 1975 about the Asilomar meeting, in which, for example, the author talks about standing in the bathroom and noting how few of the scientists who were talking about, you know, how responsible conduct in their laboratories would contain any sort of risk, um, noting how few of them washed their hands after they went to the bathroom. Um, those are like pretty accessible things, but they take contextualization. You have to narrate them. Um, so I think actually the maybe a, a better approach is to explore what are the resources available for teachers to get up to speed such that they could play sort of storyteller and contextualize a few little pieces of a few little artifacts that come from history that are quite interesting. Um, uh, but would need to be sort of narrated. And for that, I mean, it's sort of pick your problem. There's, there's vast resources. Um, uh, you know, I don't even know where to start. I mean, the library, of course, but, but there are lots and lots of online resources, lots and lots of interesting people who've done interesting historical work. There are talks that are accessible because they're now, you know, digitally available and so forth. Um, and, you know, borrowing a little, I say, as someone who does this kind of scholarship, I would love it if people would borrow bits of it and deploy it themselves. I don't care about getting cited in somebody's classroom or whatever, um, make use of them. And there's just a sort of vast resource, but that would take work. I mean, that takes work and, and people would have to put in the energy to sort of bring themselves up to speed enough to integrate it into their curriculum. And then it also takes a bit of space in the curriculum, but I think it would be for the good. Great. Now, how would you propose we teach bioethics without involving religious morality? Where does our truth come from in making correct bioethic decisions? Yeah. So look, if you think of bioethics as a set of answers, that's a real problem. If you think of bioethics as a set of questions, it's not a problem at all. Because if those are questions about, you know, what does a good society do? What is, what is sort of right and appropriate? Um, I mean, those are questions that democracies contend with, right? And they may contend with them at the level of sort of private individual judgment, or they may contend with them at the level of public policy. Oftentimes it's a mixture of those two. And those are conversations that democracies not only do have, but should have and must have. And I see no reason why those kinds of questions can't be brought into um, the classroom, which is of course a space of civic engagement. It is a mini public sphere in which young futures, young citizens um, are, are learning how to think and deliberate together. And so one need not ask the questions in a way that privileges one moral or religious repertoire over another. And it indeed is very likely the case that that a range of moral views, including some that are that draw upon 
religious beliefs will, will be salient. But then a further question is, how do we bring these into a public discussion? And there isn't a settled answer to that question. And I think that keeping those questions alive and allowing students to encounter them as genuine questions, rather than as disciplinary rules that say, you can talk this way, but not that way in this sort of space, um, is, is good for students. Now, I think it's actually a kind of a civic obligation to do that. It's a dimension of pedagogy that is neglected, but is crucial. Uh, we have another one here. Where do you ground your conversation about ethics? How do you lead students to an understanding about complexities of the issues while still coming down to something solid? Well, it depends what you mean by coming down to something solid. But the answer is that it's easy. And the way I do it is not by abstracting from you know, the, the historically situated problem and all of its complexity to sort of draw out the sort of core moral issue. I'm not a moral philosopher and that's not my mode. I'm, a, I'm an historian, I'm a social scientist and my mode is to, is, to is to see these kinds of problems as situated in culture, in politics, in history, in scientific and technological regimes and, and to ask about them very directly. So for example, a, a couple of weeks ago in my undergraduate class, we were talking about the pandemic and about, and about sort of public health governance. And I sent everybody out to find a public health policy, um, you know, a mask mandate, what rules govern their dorms, uh, you know, what the, what the, what, uh, you know, the Swedes have done versus the French have done versus, you know, people in Arizona have done in terms of school closures, these kinds of things. And for every one of those, there's, it's a very concrete, right? That something has been done, a policy has been made. But for every one of them, you can ask, well, what is the evidence that was marshaled in support of that? What was the authority that sort of interpreted that evidence and established a policy from it? What kind of trade-offs, what ideas of sort of good and bad, of harms and benefits were back of it? What sorts of of allocations of harms and benefits and asymmetries in harms and benefits. So did, were the burdens borne more by somebody and benefits um, you know, enjoyed more by others? Those kinds of questions. And in that, in that very concrete thing, you can see how you know, there isn't some pre-configured set of evidence that answers the question. It's a matter of how you ask the question. If you think that educating children in an environment which, in which they can engage in the forms of social relations that children um, naturally do. And you think, if you think that that's a human right, then you ask questions about the evidence of you know, viral spread in classrooms and questions about risk, the epidemiological questions differently. You ask the policy questions differently, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can go from something very concrete to sort of larger questions about, well, what's the right kind of science for this, right? Which is linked to questions about, well, what is the, what is the right kind of question? What is it that we care about here? Um, and therefore, what kinds of expertise do we draw upon? In what ways is this contested? In what ways are our judgments about what's at stake about, about sort of, a, you know, what is the right approach themselves contested such that different modes of different approaches to evidence, different notions of knowledge, um, et cetera, come into the picture. I think getting to that point of complexity is really, really easy coming from something very concrete. 
And I think if we learn how to think about concrete things in this way, what's back of them? What are they situated in? What are the sort of unthought and unspoken dimensions of them that sort of that travel along with them? Um, uh, but if we kind of crack them open and take a look, what we see are value judgments. We see sort of, you know, visions of a good society, maybe competing visions of a good society. Um, we see competing, therefore, political visions, we, uh, all sorts of things that are at stake in bioethics. I mean, then, then you're sort of doing bioethics properly and you're in a position to ask questions that are enriching of that particular thing, but also of many other things, because once you learn how to ask those questions, you can turn your attention to some other concrete domain and ask the same sorts of questions. And so my approach is to not um, try to arrive at settled answers, right? Because who am I to declare what's right? My approach is to seek to cult cultivate the capacity to ask robust questions uh, and and then leave the resolution of those questions to the sorts of, you know, public deliberative processes that ideally our, our students are or should eventually be engaged in. Um, that to me is what teaching bioethics requires. And it's solid in the sense that it's grounded in the world, as opposed to grounded in some sort of construction or abstraction um, that you begin with as though that's going to clarify the world. One of the other things I do, I like to do is take, I mean, this is sort of, this is maybe less salient, but it's taking abstracted constructions and looking at how they get implemented. Um, you know, you can do this on a sort of scientific level, or you can do it on a moral level. So the moral level would be something like the trolley problem. You know, this problem, the trolley's barreling down the tracks and there are five guys in the tracks over here and there's one on the track over there. And do you pull the lever so that the train goes from the five guys track to the one guy track and kills the one guy and saves the five? I mean, it's an old problem in, in moral philosophy and much has been written about it. But it's also very interesting to see how that is deployed as a sort of way of clarifying actual concrete problems in the world. And you can ask whether it clarifies those problems. Same thing for like risk assessment of say, of say, um, synthetic chemicals, where we have built ways of asking questions about whether these produce harms that are more narrow and mo way more simple than the actual way they float around in the world and enter bodies and interact with other, um, with other uh, substances that are in the environment and so forth. And so what's at stake there are, or you know, you could ask the same thing about vaccine efficacy. What's at stake there is not just like, what does the science tell us about this question, the answer to this question. It's also, how do we ask this question? What's at stake in asking this question this way? In what ways does it allow us to achieve something, decide as a society, these vaccines are safe, these chemicals are acceptable to release into the environment? Um, and I mean, I mean, those are ethical questions in the sense that, in deciding to evaluate a question in this particular way, we've decided that expediency is important, or we've decided that you know protection of harms is important. You know, different people are going to have outsized exposures to particular kinds of chemicals. Do we think about those sorts of questions in the way we set up the scientific problem? These are very, very concrete, and yet they quickly take you into the complex and the, in a sense, profoundly ethical ethical in a public sense, where it's judgments that have to be made by us as a democratic society about 
what ways we wish to govern ourselves and therefore how we ought to know the things that are essential to governance. I think it's not hard for kids to wrap their heads around that, the interconnections between those things, except if we teach them that, that you know, this stuff is in your science period and that stuff is in your civics period and never, you know, and the, and the two don't intersect, they're separate matters, but they aren't, they aren't. And so we should teach those intersections. Yeah. Uh, it looks like we have time for one more. Um, what are your views on the cloning of cells for disease treatment? Um, on the cloning of cells for disease treatment. So cloning in the biological science is a very, very broad concept that extends from, you know, basically making a, a, a replicated section of DNA all the way up to, um, you know, making a genetically identical um, organism, including in principle, a human organism. So um, I, I'm not sure I can answer that question because maybe the, the whoever asked it could clarify a little bit which, what cells you mean and for what purpose and so forth. Sure, I'll uh, keep an eye on uh, whoever okay. asked that question. If you wanna just submit another question uh, for their asking, I'll be happy to, to relay that out. Other than that, uh, I don't see any other questions pending for right now. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I do want to give a quick reminder to everybody uh, that at the bottom of the screen, uh, you do have uh, the option to complete a brief survey to let us know your thoughts on this session, as well as all the other sessions that you may have attended over the past two days. Uh, additionally, on your virtual attendee hub, there are recommended resources related to our topic today uh, that you have access to. And at the conclusion of this presentation, of course, you may rewatch this session uh, if you uh, so inclined. Other than that, uh, Dr. Holbrook, is there anything else you would like to add before concluding our time today? No, oh, just thank you very much. And, and uh, I'm easy to find on the web if anybody wants to follow up. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a great rest of your night. Thank you.